0: So at this time, we're going to go through the questions that everybody submitted earlier on today. Uh, Some of the questions have been simplified or or contextualized a little bit, and others have been saved for the panel discussion tomorrow. Uh, But with that being said, we're going to go through questions until Dr. Peterson calls it quits. So we're going to start with the first one. (laughs) The first question... What advice do you have for men in their 20s and 30s that grew up without a father or a positive male role model and in a sheltered environment? What practical steps can one take to counter the effects of an an edible relationship?
1: Well, you know, you you can build yourself a virtual father, I guess. And I, I think that anybody who develops their character across time does that to some degree. You know, I mean, when I went to university... You, you find your peers in different ways, you know. And, of course, I had friends in university, and that was good. And I still have friends, amazingly enough. And uh, But I found a lot of the people who I wanted to emulate, and, and then you could think of those as your symbolic father. I, I, I found many of the people that I wanted to emulate among the great men of history. You know, and the idea that there were great men in history... <laughs> And that they weren't just tyrants and that they're not just elevated for purposes of power, of course, is something that's tremendously under attack, but it's, it's actually, it's so wrong that it's just absolutely beyond belief. I mean, the the Western canon, let's say, exists not for purposes of power and domination, but because our entire society decided as a group that there were certain people whose achievements were far beyond the average and that it was necessary for us to make a relationship with those people because that would continue our civilization and also ennoble everyone who had the opportunity to come into contact with those works and to reduce that to something like... Tyrannical power and 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 race-based selection for for uh, for for ability and intellect is just—it's so corrupt. It's unbelievable. But so you, you have to start formulating an ideal. It's something like that. And and the way you do that is you read great books. That's a—I mean, if you're intellectually. If you're intellectually oriented or spiritually oriented for that matter, and people are whether they like it or not, because to be spiritually oriented is really to be concerned about how you conduct yourself during your life, how do you behave and how you perceive, it's it's not optional. Like you can be spiritually oriented in an intelligent and sophisticated way, or you can be spiritually oriented in a klutzy and ignorant way, but you don't have the option of not being spiritually oriented, that's just impossible. So, you know, you find, look at what you admire. That's a really good example. Look at what you admire. And that's the, that's the voice of an instinct within you that's trying to catalyze your further development. And it's part of the manifestation of an archetype. And, you know, you, if you look around and you're not too cynical, you'll see that there are people who are conducting themselves in the world in one state, on one stage or another, who embody traits that call to you, you know, and you're, transfixed by them, you might say. I mean, sometimes that happens with sports figures, right? You know, because they play out a symbolic... Uh, they, they symbolically... They play out a symbolic representation of heroism every time they take the field. And so maybe you're gripped by that, and there's a reason for that, right? That's the grip of the instinct that produces the transformations that lead you to a more complete individuality, and you have to follow that. And you have to keep your spirit free of... Of resentment, that's really important if you've been over sheltered, because resentment is and arrogance; those are your enemies, and the proclivity for deceit that goes along with that. And so, and then you also have to be careful that you don't fall prey to the temptations of that coddling situation. Let's say, because you know, if you're overprotected, you've actually been invited into a deal with the devil, so to speak, and it's something like, well, I'll I'll take care of you f- forever, and 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 you will never leave me. And the bargain I'll make with you is, you just don't have to be that good at anything, and I'll never call you on it. And that's really a, just a terrible, terrible, terrible bargain. And so, um, and it, it makes the person with whom that bargain has been arranged extraordinarily angry and resentful across time, because they feel within them that what was good about them and what could have gone out into the world and flourished has has been subjugated and betrayed and it has so you you I I had this kid come and visit me a while ago a couple of weeks ago months ago and uh, he, he came from a family that that had those problems and 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 he was a pretty smart kid but he hadn't managed to transform that into the proper levels of attainment it should have been and he came to visit me in toronto and he was from one of the northwestern united one of the northwestern states He'd never gone outside of his town. He'd never gone outside of his state, but he came to toronto to um, See one of my lectures and he stopped me after the lecture And he's tried to talk to me, but he was so damn nervous that he couldn't even say a word you know and way far that way beyond norm, normal levels of anxiety and so I was watching him, and he was turning all red, and he was stuttering, and I thought, well, there's something up here that, that isn't right, and I told him that I would, he told me that he finally got out, that he had come all the way from this state to see me, and that he hadn't ever gone outside his little place in the world before. It was at the same time, approximately, that I was talking about the story of Abraham, and you know, in, in the Abrahamic stories, Abraham's kind of old when God calls to him, and, he's, and, and way too old for God to be telling this to him. He says, you know, get get up off your seat and um, get out there in the world, you know. Leave your family and leave your friends and go out into the world, you know. It's time to get out into the world. <laughs> and so it was kind of an interesting coincidence. But uh, he did. He left his home. He left his family and moved into the city proper and got a job as a dishwasher, which is like not really... You know, it's not a high-status job. I was a dishwasher for quite a long time in restaurants and actually got to enjoy it quite a bit because there was a lot of camaraderie in the kitchen. But the thing is, the kid had enough sense not to be all resentful about that. You know, he was willing, he was humble enough, let's say, and that was conscious decision to notice that that was a marked improvement over his previous state, you know. And I my observation in jobs like that, and it's not always the case, but, you know, if you're... When I was a dishwasher... I stuck it out. And I was only about 13 when I started something like that. And I could remember being in the restaurant till like two in the morning, because there's no damn way I could keep up with all these dishes. And I tried like mad for about two weeks. And I thought, I just can't do this. I told my dad, I said, look, I'm, you know, because he was kind of worried about me being out so late. But uh, I said, I don't think I can do this. I'm working as hard as I can. And I just can't keep up. It's like, I'm not sure I can manage this. And then finally the German chef who ran the place took pity on me and showed me how to do it but he was watching me to see if I was you know going to stick it out and then he showed me that you had to organize yourself and do it half ways intelligently and then I could do my job in like you know 10% of the time and I spent the rest of the time like toying around with the playing around with the cooks in the kitchen, and having quite a good time at it, and staying on top of my job, and I stuck with it, and most of my friends at that time also did the dishwasher thing, because I would get them jobs, but they all quit, and so, but my observation, and then I got, I was a short order cook after that, and, you know, and, and I really actually enjoyed that in my adolescence, but the whole point of this story is, is that, you know, even in those, those beginner jobs, let's say, there's there's a certain nobility, they're necessary jobs, you can do a bad job at them, or you can do a good job, if you do a good job, the job elevates itself, because even as a dishwasher, you know, you're in a social community, and you can make that social community better or worse, and you can serve the the restaurant better or worse, and that actually makes a difference, and this kid was smart enough to have figured that out. He was grateful for the job and, you know, he was on the up and up. He was trying to move out there in the world and he was willing to take what oppor- whatever opportunity presented him- to himself as and think about that as a step forward instead of being arrogant and thinking, well, that's not good enough. I'm just going to stay here waiting for people to recognize my talent and, you know, rotting until he's 45 and then doing something horrible because that that's the general outcome of that sort of situation, right? So... So I would say um, notice the devil's bargain. That's the first thing. And the next thing is take whatever damn opportunity presents itself to you to move yourself beyond where you are. That's good general advice anyways, but it's crucial for those sorts of situations because it's often arrogance that keeps people trapped in those situations. And it's partly because the familial environment that's tempting the child to stay too long in the nest also implies that, well, in some ways you're just too good for the world and, you know, you're just not getting what you deserve. And if people would just recognize your talent, the world would open up and you, you don't want to take something that's beneath you. It's like, it's a real temptation then to, to well, sit at home and develop a resentment for a world that doesn't recognize your talents, and that is a seriously, seriously, seriously bad thing to do. So,
0: yeah. For a moment, let's go past the development stage. This next question is, in a man's personal and professional life, one has superiors as well as subordinates. What do we owe to those above us on the dominance hierarchy? And how should we be good followers as well as good leaders?
1: Okay, well, the first thing I might say about that is I'm not so sure about this whole dominance hierarchy phrase. You know, I have a business partner who's very smart. He has a master's degree in engineering from MIT and a PhD in psychology from Harvard. He's a very smart person. And he took me to task a while back for using that dominance hierarchy phrase. And uh, he said that he thought that part of the reason that phrase itself had become representative of male human organizations was because there was also already a like a Marxist template in some sense through which even biologists were viewing activity in the animal and human world and they're making the assumption that hierarchies are actually predicated on dominance but that's and and you know he really took me aback because I'd been using the dominance hierarchy phrase for a long time and I started to think about it and I thought well It's actually not true that a well-functioning human hierarchy is a dominance hierarchy. It's a competence hierarchy. And that is radically a different thing. Like the patriarchy and a competence hierarchy, those are seriously, seriously different things. Whereas the patriarchy and a dominance hierarchy aren't so much the same thing. So let's assume that we're talking about competence hierarchies. And we also do know that in functioning economies like and functioning societies like the Western societies, because they're quite functional, that the best predictors of long term success are intelligence and the capacity to work hard. So that's conscientiousness. And they don't account for all of success, obviously, because you know, there's random factors in life and there are other personality traits that matter and you know, and and so there's no set of personal attributes that are certain predictors of success. But of the predictors we know, those are the two most powerful and they are very powerful predictors. So our, most of our hierarchies are in fact based on competence. And that means in some sense too that your boss is your boss if the situation is working properly because he or she actually knows more than you do. And so you, you owe it to them to to, um, first of all, have some respect for, with regards to the hierarchy as a whole, especially if it's functioning properly. And then you owe them the, you owe them the truth. That's really, really unbelievably important. And, The truth, not only in terms of what you're willing to say and report, but also in terms of your action. And that's part of what's fundamentally associated with conscientiousness. You know, you owe people superiors or inferiors, let's say, which is also a bad way of thinking about it. Um, because those who are beneath you in the competence hierarchy, maybe you're only there because, uh, they're younger often. They just haven't developed to the same degree. It's, it's not like they're inferiors. They're just, that's just how the power relationship there it goes again. That's just how the relationship is set up at at the moment. It's gonna transform across time. You owe them honesty and integrity and 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 that's fundamentally, I, I would say that's fundamentally what you owe them. You know, in there's old stories about how organizations become corrupt. And the the best old stories, and the best one I know is this story from ancient Egypt that I referred to this morning. You know, is that social organizations become corrupt when people turn a blind eye to pathology within the system and this is something really worth knowing because you might ask yourself well how is it that whole societies can go sideways like say the 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 entire soviet union from 1919 to well to 1989 but certainly till 1959 it was hell absolute hell Everything that everyone said to everyone else was a lie. Everything that everyone acted out was a lie. And that's how societies become corrupt, right? And and inside an organization like a business, if you turn a blind eye to things that you know to be wrong, and you don't report them, and you don't stand up against them, then you warp the entire structure of that organization. And that's a really bad idea, unless you want to live within a warped organization. And I wouldn't recommend that because if they get warped enough, it is not the place that anyone who was alert and and who still had an iota of spirit within them would ever want to inhabit. And if we 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 should have learned that from the twentieth century, right? Hundreds of millions of people died in the twentieth century. You could say so that we could learn that. And you owe people your honesty. And that doesn't mean you should shoot off your mouth at every possible occasion, you know, and object to everything that's going on. But it does mean that if you're put in a situation where your soul is being crushed for one reason or another, that you have a moral obligation to do something about that. And that might also mean that you have to set yourself up. I've done a lot of, let's say, career counseling. It's not exactly the right word with people. But helping them learn how to negotiate so that they can advance their lives. And if you want to have some power... Some influence and some authority and some competence as you move forward in life, you have to open up a lateral space of possibility. So, for example, when you have a job, you need to keep your, a lateral move available to you at all times. And that means you have to work hard so you have a good reputation so that someone else might hire you so that if push comes to shove and the organization starts to become corrupt and tilts that you have a, that, that, That your entire life doesn't depend on your maintenance of that position because if it does, you won't be in a position to have, you won't have positioned yourself properly to be able to object when objectionable things start to happen. And so you have to be ready to move laterally or, or up even at all times so that you can speak your mind without fear. And then what you'll find if you do speak your mind is that actually will facilitate your career development immensely, because people who speak their mind are actually extraordinarily valuable if at the same time they have their eyes open, because then they're pointing out problems that actually exist. And if they're talking to anybody who has a clue, and they're doing it relatively fearlessly and without resentment and not too late, so they're not too angry, then that actually gives them credibility and the probability that that will push their careers forward is extraordinarily high and if that isn't true in the organization that you're in then you should go find another organization because you don't want to be in a place where competence and truth aren't rewarded a place like that's going to crumble and die anyways because you know we know we know social scientists know if they're awake at all that the most important natural resource is actually trust it's society's where people fundamentally trust each other that are rich, and it's societies where people fundamentally distrust each other that are poor. And a great example of that is Japan, because the Japanese economy is basically a place of honest trading, and Japan has no natural resources, right? It's this little bitty island with way too many people on it, and it's been incredibly rich for decades, and that's because... The fundamental transaction between two Japanese individuals is honorable and honest, and that's enough to make everyone cooperate, and that's enough to make everyone rich. And so, you know, morality isn't an impractical obligation. Morality is the most practical of possible, uh, what would you call, guidelines. That Otherwise, it wouldn't wouldn't exist, it wouldn't have evolved, let's say, these moral guidelines. They're, they're the ways that you can act now that make it best for you tomorrow and next week and next month and ten years from now at the same time that you're doing the same thing for everyone around you. It's very, very practical advice, and one of the things that's at the base of that is, is the truth. And obviously, it's like, here you are operating in the world. And the world is a very complex place, and it's an unforgiving place. And you can either walk through the world with your eyes open, which means you don't have to run into posts, and you don't have to be run over by things that you don't see, which, which increases the tragedy of life. If you walk through life with your eyes open, seeing what's there then you can avoid most obstacles, and then your life is much more, much less horrible than it has to be. And then you're much less bitter, and you're much less resentful, and you're much less murderous and hostile, and that seems to be a good thing. And that's all associated with the truth, right? And so it's it's self-evident, and unless you're so damn arrogant that you think that you can replace reality with your own fictitious representation, then operate within that fictitious repu- uh, representation, and that that's, that somehow you're going to get away with that, and it's not going to backfire. It's like, really? That's not a good idea. That's not a good plan. It, it will absolutely, 100%, certainly backfire at you. You know, you're like the guy running headfirst, into a brick wall from a hundred feet away, thinking for the first 99 feet that this is really going well. It's like, it is really going well, but when you finally come to the end of the, of the little process, you're gonna find out that, you know, you were right for 99 feet and really wrong for the last foot. So, and that's what deceit is like. It's, it's when, if you warp the structure of reality in your favor, you're bending something that's unbelievably forceful back and you'll bend it and it'll bend and then you know your strength will falter or you'll let go and it'll knock you flat and then you'll curse the world and that's that's the story of Cain and Abel in some sense it's like that's a very bad thing to do and there's nothing in it that's good there's nothing in it that isn't destructive and terrible for you and for everyone around you so um you want to Act in a way that allows you to describe what you're doing. So that's, that's part of truth. And then you want to. Articulate what you see in front of your eyes as carefully as you possibly can. And you should be terrified. See, people say, I'm afraid to tell the truth. It's like, well, cry. Absolutely. You should be terrified to tell the truth because reality is like a really rough place, man. And to tell the truth about it is to face malevolence and tragedy and all of those things. And so, you know, I'm afraid to tell the truth. It's like, yeah, no kidding. But that's not the issue. You're not afraid enough of, of lying. That's the problem, because no matter how terrible it is to tell the truth, and it's plenty terrible, that's for sure, it's way, way more terrible to not tell the truth. And you can blind yourself to that, and then you're blind, which I wouldn't recommend, because then you run into things. You can blind yourself to that, but it doesn't matter. It will absolutely, 100% catch up with you. And so, well, so I guess that's the answer to that question. <laughs>
0: So in yeah. in the answer that you just gave, you touched several times the concepts of truth, trust, honesty, and lying. In that vein, could you please paint a picture of what it means to lie to oneself?
1: Well, that's a good one because you know there's been a lot of debate about academics about how you can lie to yourself. It's like, well, how huh, do you mean lie to yourself? It's like, how can you believe one thing and something else that isn't that thing at the same time? Well, we're not logic machines, so that's the wrong way of thinking about it. The way you lie to yourself is to refuse to know certain things, and so, well, let's say you have a uh, a niggling suspicion. Okay, so that's a good one. You have a niggling suspicion, and I would consider that, so you have a representation of the world, and it's somewhat articulated, and you're acting it out, and then you have a niggling suspicion that something isn't right. Uh, Maybe you think maybe an employee is uh, pilfering from you, let's say, or maybe your chief financial officer isn't keeping the book straight, or maybe... Maybe your partner is having an affair, and maybe not too, but you have this suspicion. But the suspicion isn't knowledge, it's just a warning sign. And it's embodied. It's, and the way it would be embodied is maybe when, when that notion passes through your mind, you start to sweat a bit more and your heart rate rises. And that's a sign from your, from the early warning systems that make up your physiology that there's, there's a hole in the way that you're looking at the world. Well, then the right thing to do is to go investigate that. And, like, who wants to do that? No one. Because, like, what are you, you're either going to find that you're delusional and, and paranoid or that something horrible is happening. So it's like, really? Are you really going to be motivated to go do that? Because both of those are bad news. And so what you do to lie to yourself is just don't look. You blind yourself, essentially, and and so you just, like, it's really easy to not know something, you just have to not investigate it. It's effortful to know something, so you basically lie mostly by omission, you know, and there's this old idea that sins of commission are worse than sins of omission, and I'm not so sure about that. I mean, sins of commission are plenty bad. That's when you actually go out and actively do something that you know is wrong. And a sin of omission is when you just don't do something that you know to be right. And, you know, okay, maybe that's a reasonable moral hierarchy, but lots of times people, you know, maybe a husband and wife are having an argument, and they're getting kind of irritated, and it's not really going anywhere, and maybe the wife stomps away, and she thinks well, I'm not going to let this bother me. And so then her blood pressure is, yeah, (laughs) you laugh about that. Yeah, yeah, no kidding, eh? I'm not going to let this bother me. It's like, (laughs) right, right. You've obviously been there, because that's exactly the right response. It's such a lie. It's like, it's going to bother you. And not only is it going to bother you, you're going to take revenge for it. You'll wait. And you do the same thing with your kids. Like, you know, if you go out and you take your kid to the to the grocery store and you know your kid has a fit because you're you won't let him or her take some toy or some chocolate and put it into the into the cart and then they have a nice tantrum in the middle of the of the grocery store because they know in their little child intelligent way that that will maximally humiliate you um and then, you know, you smile, and you pick them up, and you think, oh, well, that's really okay. And then later, you know, half an hour later, you're at home, and the kid has done some little drawing and comes running up to you to show you the drawing, and maybe it's actually a pretty good drawing. And and they show you the drawing, and you think, oh, that's a pretty good drawing. But then you also think, man, you know, I really kind of hate this kid. And so... <laughs> Yeah, and so then you don't say that's a really good drawing, you just kind of don't attend to it and then you punish the child for his or her virtues, which is the best way to punish someone. And then you can crush their little creative spirit and then you can think, ha, you little bastard, that'll teach you to have a tantrum in the, in the supermarket. And if you don't think you're like that, then like, you know, oh, really, first of all, you wouldn't be laughing. And second of, yeah, second of all, you haven't looked at yourself closely enough in the mirror, right? So, I mean, and, and so you, 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 you don't want to pretend to yourself that you're better than you are. And there's a, there's a psychologist named Eric Neumann who was a student of Carl Jung's and a very brilliant student at that. And he wrote a book called Depth Psychology and a New Ethic after World War II. And one of the things that he recommended in that book, which is quite brilliant, is don't be better than you are. And he didn't mean don't strive towards moral improvement. I mean, he was not he, he was a sophisticated person. He meant don't kid yourself about how easy to get along you, with you are. And how nice you are and how positively oriented you are in the world. It's like, probably not. And so, and so when, you're, when you're annoyed at something, let's say, between you and your partner, and, and you walk away and you notice, well, I'm actually homicidally outraged right now, but it's not... <laughs> then, you know, you, you should take that seriously. And then you should figure out how to fix that. And you should also notice that you have that Depth of feeling within you and then you should ask yourself especially if it's in like a marriage is like Do you really want to be that outraged every day for the next 50 years? Right because that's what you're that's what you're begging for right then and there you might say well I don't really want to have a fight. It's like well. Yeah, no kidding You don't want to have a fight because they're very unpleasant but you you know a proper fight is a fight for peace and a, and a marriage is a wrestling match, you know, like in, in the story of Jacob, Jacob wrestles with God and he ends up with a dislocated hip because wrestling with jo- God is no joke, but a, but but it straightens you out. And a marriage is a wrestling match like that too, you know. We're going to live happily ever after. It's like, no, you're not, that's, that's not right because the person that you've married is at least as flawed as you are or they wouldn't have picked you to begin with. So, so... You've got a lot of contending with them to do, you know, and that contending is part of what molds you together across time as, well, I would say as something that approximate approximates in your duality the instantiation of Christ, because the idea of the Christian marriage is that a man and a woman are brought together to recreate the original Adam. That's one way of thinking about it before Adam and Eve were separated to recreate the original person, but also to incarnate a morality that can only be achieved as a consequence of continual moral struggle between the couple and the, the psychological or spiritual development of both of them. And that's a matter of exchanging the truth. And the truth is a very bitter pill. But the alternative is falsehood and falsehood. To follow falsehood is to follow a, the trail to hell. And if you've ever tracked someone's, you know, uh, let's call it, journey sojourn through the divorce courts, especially when they're fighting over children and they spend $350,000 in legal fees and 15 years of their lives at each other's throats while pouring money into the coffers of lawyers and and watching their career disintegrate. Then, if you haven't seen that, well then, A, you're fortunate, and B, your eyes aren't open because it happens all the time. And so... Telling the truth to each other is a hell of a business, but the alternative is so much worse that it's not even funny. And you can ignore what you, is upsetting you, but you do it at your peril. And so, you know, if you're having a fight with your wife, let's say, there might be something wrong with you. That might be why the fight is happening. Like, hopefully there's something wrong with her, right? You're going to do everything you can to convince her that she, there, that there's actually something wrong with her, which actually doesn't solve the problem much, right? Because then you're married to someone who has a problem. And so that's not really much of a solution. But maybe it's better than admitting that there's something wrong with you. But to have a dispute means there's something wrong. And then to investigate that, that's no trivial matter. You know, you might be find out that you're fighting with the ghost of your mother's dead grandmother who was beat by her husband and that that horror show is still being propagated down the generations and in, in the form of a I don't know a set of assumptions about men and women and then you have to wrestle that through and it's just a bloody catastrophe, but it sure beats putting up with it for the next 50 years. So you lie mostly by omission. You deceive yourself mostly by omission and it's a very, very, very bad idea. So, better to make peace. You know, Christ said in the New Testament that he came not to bring peace, but a sword, and, and well, that, there, there's a reason for that, and the reason for that often is that conscious struggle and conscious warfare even is the way that you make peace. You know, and, and if you're arguing with someone who's close to you, you think, okay, Maybe we won't, don't want to do this forever, and so we need to get to the bottom of this. And maybe it's you, but maybe it's me. So we're going to have a talk, and we're going to find out who it is, and then we're going to find out what we're going to do about it, and then we're going to do it. And then that's an incredibly intense process. It's really harsh and rough, but if you can go through it, then maybe you can solve the problem. And then you don't have to have that problem anymore. And then you're going to have a hundred or a thousand other problems, that's for sure. But at least you don't have that one repeating constantly. And so don't deceive yourself when you're upset about something because there's a reason you're upset. It might not be the reason you think and you might be the cause of it, but there's something to be upset about and it has to be figured out. Now, one more thing about that is that That's a heroic battle, I would say, for two reasons. One is, you might find out something about you or your partner that really tears a hole in your vision of the world. But it also might be that you, for for a variety of reasons, merely because you're ignorant or naive, that's one of it. But the other thing is, you may also encounter elements of yourself that are extraordinarily malevolent. Or the same with your partner. And so, like, to investigate the cause of an upset in an intimate relationship is to go down underneath things into the underworld and see what's down there. And, like, what's down there is by no means trivial or pretty. That's for sure. And it's no wonder people avoid it. But avoiding things does not make them go away. In fact, it makes them grow. And if you avoid them and they grow, you get smaller and they get bigger. And that's also a very bad developmental trajectory. So...
0: Today, you described literature that argues that we would be better off never to have lived because of the net suffering in our lives. And then you suggested that maybe the idea provides a poor frame of reference for living. Yet you still emphasize suffering as being a primary condition of human existence. What makes the prospect of lifelong suffering an appropriate frame of reference for living?
1: That is, that is exactly the question. Right. That... <laughs> No, seriously, that's exactly the question. I mean, part of the reason that I'm doing the biblical, some of you know I'm doing a series of lectures on, they're called the psychological significance of the biblical stories because I'm approaching it primarily from a psychological perspective. But that's what the Bible is about, actually. It's about, you know, because it lays out very clearly the state of humanity. The state of humanity is fallen and we're malevolent. Like, we have the capacity for malevolence. So that, that's that's the story of the fall in, in Genesis. And it's unbelievably accurate psychologically because human beings are self-aware creatures. So we know our limits in time and space. And so we know that the end is nigh. We know that, like, no other creature knows that. And it's because of that that we have to work and sacrifice and that we're never really at peace because no matter how well we solve the problems of today we have not solved the problems of tomorrow and so we're constantly restless and fighting a battle in some sense that can't be won and that's rough and that's what God tells Adam you know when when he kicks him out of paradise it's like okay you woke up well you know that's not so good because now you know you're gonna die and because you know that you're gonna have to work and it turns out that work is actually very difficult and um, and then you die. And so that's, that's <laughs> not so good. You know, and he, what does he tell Eve? He says, you know, well, you know, you woke this man up and that was probably a bad idea and, and uh, now you're going to be beholden to him even though That doesn't mean he's a glory, glorified creature. It just means that you are going to have these little kids that are going to be clinging to you and making you dependent. You're going to have to put up with this guy. And so that's your problem. And, you know, and so that's the end. That's the beginning of the world. That's the beginning of history, right? Is that people wake up and they see the future and history starts because history is when we start to build our protective structures against our mortality. And and it's not only that, it's not only that we have to face the tragedy of existence having woken up, but at the same time, you know, when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they develop the knowledge of good and evil. They realize they're naked and they know develop the knowledge of good and evil. And that took me a long time. I thought, what the hell do those two things have to do with each other? Why are they put together like that? And then I realized, I thought, oh, I see. To realize that you're naked... And then to be ashamed of that, to be naked, say, in front of a crowd, is to expose your vulnerability fully, to strip yourself of all your protection, and to reveal yourself as a mortal, fragile, damaged, and flawed creature. Which is exactly right. That is what you are. And then to, to know that is to also be consumed by shame about that, and it's no wonder. It's like, it's not surprising that that's the case. It's absolutely inevitable that that's the case. Everyone is ashamed of their insufficiencies, Or they wouldn't be insufficiencies. And, and everyone has insufficiencies. So everyone is ashamed. That's that, obviously. And then, so to, and, but it's worse too, because to realize that you're naked and vulnerable means that, it means to realize that a human being is naked and vulnerable. And that's also an aha moment. It's like, aha! That opens up a whole new frame of, a whole new range of possibilities. Because, you know, let's say that I'm a torture in a medieval dungeon. The reason I can do that is because I know what hurts me, because I know how I'm vulnerable. And as soon as I know how I'm vulnerable, I know how you're vulnerable. And then I can exploit that vulnerability, and that's the knowledge of good and evil, and that's something that animals don't have. Like a a predator, a lion will eat you if it's old and toothless and hungry. It'll jump on you and try to eat you, but it's not evil. It's like it's hungry. But that's not what a human being is like. It's like a human being who's possessed by a malevolent spirit is like, you better look out because that's one smart creature and he or she knows exactly what will hurt you the most and is perfectly capable not only of utilizing that knowledge, but of delighting in it. And so that's the knowledge of good and evil. And it's like, don't, don't be thinking that's some metaphorical representation. That's the real thing, man. That's, that's no joke. And, you know, in, in, in the Old Testament, that's presented as an event of cosmic significance, right? Human beings waking up and being self-conscious and then developing the knowledge of good and evil. It's like it puts a rupture in the structure of being. And, you know, that's also no superstitious representation. It's like we, we play that out as a drama in our lives, And I don't know how important that is cosmically, I suppose, depends on how important you think human consciousness is and humankind is. But we are the most complicated things that have ever existed. And there's no evidence whatsoever that there are creatures like us anywhere else in the entire cosmos. And so, we don't know how this cosmic drama is being played out, and we don't know how central we are to it, but we might be a lot more central than we think. And the atheist types think, oh, well, you're just trying to glorify yourself and inflate your self-importance because you're so afraid of your vulnerability. And I would say, don't be so sure about that. Because to realize that you might be playing a role of cosmic significance, is to take on a responsibility that's absolutely overwhelming. And it isn't obvious to me that that's less terrifying than just thinking you're a useless bit of matter on a dust moat, you know, in some far-flung region of the Netherlands of the cosmos. So, it's not so simple at all. Okay, so it's not just suffering that's the problem. It's also malevolence and evil, and so... So the problem is actually worse than you made it out to be. And so, okay, so, but then let's say, okay, man, we're going to grapple with this. We're not, we're making an iron man or a steel man out of the opponent. It isn't just tragedy. It's malevolence and malevolence multiplies tragedy, you know, because I've often thought, well, earthquakes and illness and all of that people actually seem to be able to cope with that remarkably well, which is quite a testament to their resilience. Not that it's easy, but it's possible. And you can either even see people acting nobly in the face of illness, and thank God for that, or no one would be able to take care of anyone that was ill. But malevolence really does people in, you know. And so, it isn't really the suffering of the world that disenchants... People with being, it's the malevolence of human beings that disenchants them. And actually, part of the reason for the malevolence is to disenchant them. Because if I really want to hurt you, I want to turn you against your own life. And I can figure out ways to do that. I can betray you. I can build up your trust and then betray you at the worst possible moment. And what I want is for you to turn against existence because that's the worst thing that I can do. And we're doing that to each other very regularly. And so, So that's also what we have to contend with. Well, so then you think, well, that's pretty bloody hopeless. We better just give up right now. But the biblical stories are the story of the development of consciousness of a mode of being that transcends that. So that's why you see Christ in the desert, for example, wrestling with the devil is that he's, I mean, he has to take on suffering in, it, in all of its totality, right? That, that's the first issue, the crucifixion and the betrayal. But the second element is that he has to face the temptation of malevolence itself and his ability to utilize that malevolence in the service of power, for example, which is obviously extraordinarily tempting. And if you were a tremendously charismatic person capable of of entrancing people, then the, the temptation to use that for pure power purposes would be intense, right? And that's a pathway to malevolence. And so the, the story of Christ in some sense is, and again I'm doing my best to speak psychologically here, although I'm not trying to limit the importance of those stories to the psychological, but I'm trying to stay within my domain of competence. Um, the story of Christ is the story of how to configure your life so that it's noble enough to justify the suffering and to avoid the malevolence. And that's the idea. So there's an idea that emerges in the Bible that despite the fact that being is suffering contaminated with malevolence, there is a mode of being that's noble enough to, to, to justify that and to transform it. And, and that's what You're supposed to be aiming at and and so you think well, yeah This is a rough place man, and it's a terrible challenge for everyone But I'm going to take the responsibility on for that voluntarily And I'm going to try to make it at least not worse at least that and maybe better Maybe even better and you know perfectly well that you can do that you every single person knows that and I suppose That's part of the knowledge of good and evil and like look, you know It's no surprise if I say to you, there have been times in your life where you acted consciously to make things worse out of resentment and hatred. It's like, if you don't know that, it's like, well, then you've blinded yourself, and good luck to you. It's, it's so obvious. If you, if you scour your conscience for five minutes, you can figure out some time in your life when you've done that, and you probably did it like three times today. So, you know, you've got to ask yourself, okay, the first question would be, okay, the, the universe seems to have a pretty fundamental warp in its structure with all the suffering and malevolence. It's like, well, are you making it worse or are you making it better? And you make it worse merely by not making it better, because then you hide your light under a bushel. That's one way of thinking about it, right? You're not allowing that part of you that could emerge to grapple with reality and transform it into something positive. You're not allowing that to emerge. And so you're depriving the world of the light that you could cast if you were willing to cast it. And that means you expand the the darkness in the world. And that's not a justifiable thing to do. And you have to ask yourself, and this is the fundamental question. What would life be if you treated it properly? And then maybe that's the act of faith. That's the act of faith. It's like, okay, I see the world. It's suffering and it's malevolence. But I'm playing a part in that. Not least because I'm not trying to oppose it with as much force as I might. It's like, what would it be like if I stopped doing that? That's the fundamental question. And then the next question is, well, what would it be like if we all stopped doing that? Who knows how we could transmute things? We could at least stop torturing each other. That would be a start. So you don't curse being. That's what Cain does. You know, he goes to God and his sacrifices aren't being rewarded. And he doesn't know why, and there's a good hint that maybe it's because he's not making exactly the right sacrifices, and he's trying to pull one over on God, which is really not a very good idea. And so then he goes to God and says, hey, you know, what the hell's up with this place you built? You know, it's really not going so well for me. And God basically says, before you criticize the structure of being, you should do whatever you can to get your own house in order, and you have not yet done that, so don't bring it to me. And Cain is so outraged by that statement that he goes and kills Abel. And if you don't understand that story, then you do not understand yourself. So, what's the purpose? Stop acting like Cain. That's the first purpose. And then let's see what happens. Maybe the structure of reality isn't rotten to the core for reasons that are beyond human control. Maybe it is, but we don't know. And, you know, my observations of people are, number one, no one gets away with anything. So that's a good thing to know. That's God writing things down in that big book in the sky. And you think, well, that's a pretty superstitious story. It's like, he probably doesn't have a big book, and he's not actually in the sky. And, you know, yeah, okay. Fair enough, you know, but that's really not the point. And, 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 and... (sighs) And the other thing is, is that if people start to tell the truth and live an honest life, then their life gets better. If they aim high, first of all, they end up higher than they were. And if they tell the truth, then they develop some self-respect and they straighten out the little bit of cosmos that's within their grasp and the positive elements of that cascade outwards. And so... And we need to take this seriously because we're at a point in our development as a species, let's say, where we're at a turning point. Everyone can feel that. You can feel all the great forces underneath the surface right now moving in all sorts of directions, and it's partly because of our insane technological advancement. And if you think things are crazy technologically now, you just wait until you see what's going to happen in the next five years or ten years because Like it's an exponential process and we're right on the cusp of artificially intelligent systems and God only knows what's going to happen when that emerges and that's going to be a consequence of the decisions that we all make. So we better get our act together. We're going to be very, very sorry. And so we're at this turning point as far as I can tell where everyone better wake up. And you wake up and you pay attention and you decide whether you're going to make things better or you're going to make things worse. And, and your decisions, each of you are involved in this decision equally, even though it might not appear that way to you. Because we're all networked together. And everyone acts as a node. And every little moral decision you make echoes out far beyond you. Beyond you to other people, beyond you into the future. You are stuck in the position of tilting the world towards hell or tilting the world towards heaven. And that's that's a responsibility that's so overwhelming that you might almost hope that your life was in fact insignificant and meaningless just so you wouldn't have to bear the weight of that responsibility. And and I actually think that people would choose that often. That part of nihilism is not so much the belief that things are pointless and meaningless, but the terror that they might not be. So, because what do you want? You want, here's your choice. You're useless and everything is terrible and you're going to die and it doesn't matter. Or every goddamn thing you do matters. It's like that is not so obvious which of those is the easier burden to bear. And I would say it would be the second one and not the first one. And so much for the, you know, the old Freudian critique that religion is the, you know, religion is nothing but wish fulfillment or the Marxist idea that it's the opiate of the masses. It's not that at all. If you take it with any degree of seriousness, it is precisely and, and absolutely the opposite. Sure.
0: So, you mentioned artificial intelligence. In the wake of new medicines promising pseudo-immortality, CRISPR's game-changing gene-editing technology, and Saudi Arabia's recent granting of citizenship to a robot named Sophia... That's
1: easier to do that than to do it for your women. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it seems that these advances will soon change how we understand human equality and the sacredness of the human individual. How should we respond to the increasing desacralization of the individual specifically because of the emergence of the bionic transhuman?
1: So, Solzhenitsyn, who wrote The Gulag Archipelago, which you have to read because, like, you have to read that book because you don't know where you are or what's happening unless you read that book. So, and it, it's a story not only about the catastrophes of the 20th century, the the radical leftist catastrophes which no one teaches our children about, which is like absolutely it's unconscionable that that's the case. I mean that conflict brought us twice within ten seconds of complete annihilation, and to not make that the the centerpiece of historical education for children is, you just think, really, really, what do you have to go through before you figure out that something's important? Anyway, so Solzhenitsyn's book documents the horrors of, the, of, the, of, of Marxism. To put it bluntly, Solzhenitsyn not only lays out what happened under Stalin, but also makes a very strong case that to blame it on Stalin was just wrong. It's actually a consequence of the unfolding of Marxist doctrine. And he makes that case, I think, indisputably. And so that's why it's not taught, because there are plenty of people who don't want that case to be made indisputably. And so that's just not so good. But, see, one of the things Solzhenitsyn said, he said that there's this idea, and he derived it from Orthodox Christianity— that each person is the center of the universe in some sense, right? And, and that's and that's how that's how it appears to us, right? Because we are a center of our universe, and and the universe is a place that has many centers, which is quite interesting, you know. But why not? It can be built that way. It's like it's a complicated thing, so it has lots of centers. It's all right. That's how it is, and so you're that center, and and then occupying that center, you have some control that the spark of divinity that's within you, let's say, offers you the opportunity to exert some control over over that center to some degree and that degree depends on your competence and and so forth, but you can choose to you can choose what you do with that domain that you have in front of you. It's a domain of potential because you know that's another thing that I've sort of figured out is that This is one of the problems with materialism, because materialism makes you think that you live in a world of objects, but that isn't actually how people experience their life. They experience their life as if they confront a horizon of potential. And I actually think that that's more accurate, even from a scientific perspective, than than the notion that that we live in this world of deterministic objects, because we actually don't. We, We actually encounter a horizon of potential and then we interact with that horizon in a, of potential in a manner that makes some elements of it actual and leaves some elements of it in potential and everyone knows that because if someone comes up to you like your father and like cuffs you on the back of the head and says you're not living up to your potential you don't say well there's no such thing as potential you know you don't say that you you know exactly what he means immediately And generally you think, yeah, I'm not living up to my potential. And and so what is this potential that you're talking about? It's not actuality because then it wouldn't be potential. And how can you live up to something if it's not actual? And it's like, you know, it's a real philosophical knot. but it doesn't matter because you know what he means. And so it's true. You're not living up to your potential. That's the first thing to understand is you're not living up to your potential. And you should stop doing that. You should try to live up to your potential because it's necessary that you do that. That's the light against the darkness. Now, how are we going to determine what our advanced technological prowess is going to bring? That's easy. It depends on how each of you live up to your potential. That's the answer. That's it. You do the best you can with what you have in front of you. And as you get better and better at doing that, then your capacity to broaden that horizon of potential grows. And, you know, you're not going to make an impact on the world by waving placards at the people who are developing artificial intelligence. That isn't going to help. It's going to depend on your ethical decisions. It's going to depend on something like, well, what do you envision for the future of humanity? Do you want us to transform into machines? Like and you know, you can you it's a perfectly reasonable question. Like maybe you could be made of titanium. Maybe you wouldn't break quite as easily then, but you might give up something in the process. And and we don't know the answer to this is how much of our fragility should we transcend? How much of it should we give up? These are very, very, very difficult questions and they're gonna depend the answers are gonna depend on what we decide the the goal is. And everyone has to decide that. And and, and maybe you don't get to decide how AI is going to manifest itself because you, you're just not in a position to do that, you know, and, and perhaps at the moment many people, very few people are. But you are in a position to alter the circumstances around you, and that's not trivial. It's, it, it, it echoes, you know, you know how much mayhem someone who's dedicated to malevolence can produce. I mean, you saw that in Las Vegas. You see that every day in the United States, every single day there's a mass shooting. And it's always the same reason. No one admits it. It's always the same reason. It's like somebody decides that the structure of being is so rife with suffering and malevolence that it's time for a little bit of revenge. And it's perfectly understandable. And if you read what these people write, that's exactly what they say. So it's not like it's hidden. It's right there. And no one wants to admit it because... Well, it cuts a little too close to the bone. That might be the right way of thinking about it. And so we obviously recognize the individual's capacity for malevolence, but we don't notice that that has an implication. If malevolence exists, so does its opposite. I actually think it's easier to believe in good once you believe in evil because at least you've established a pole. There can't be evil without good. How How can there be that evil is defined against good? So, as soon as you admit that there's evil, there's good. And if there's ultimate evil, and, you know, that seems pretty obvious, then there's got to be something that's ultimate good, which is at least the opposite of ultimate evil. At minimum, even if you can't exactly formulate what that is, the good keeps you from being an Auschwitz guard. Or the good keeps you from wishing that you were an Auschwitz guard. And if you don't think that you could wish that you're an Auschwitz guard... You don't know anything about yourself because the people who were Auschwitz guards were people and you're one of them So if you can't understand that then you don't understand yourself And that's and no wonder who wants to understand that who in the world would ever want to understand that you see There's this idea in the New Testament that Christ took the sins of the world onto his shoulders You know, that's a very interesting idea. It's a crazily interesting idea. But what that meant in part was that he was willing to bear the burden of humanity. And to take the sins of the world onto yourself is to understand that you are capable of doing all the terrible things that people do. And then to take responsibility for that. You might think, oh my God, I'm capable of doing all the terrible things that people do. I should probably do something about that. So if the opportunity came along so that I could do one of those terrible things, I wouldn't do it. And you might think, well, I wouldn't do it if the opportunity was offered to me. It's like, yeah, you really think that, do you? You think that you were back in Nazi Germany, you'd be one of those heroes who put yourself on the line for the Jews. eh? You you think that's the case. Even though it was a tiny minority of people who did that, you'd be one of them. Yeah, sure. If you think that, it's pretty likely that you wouldn't have been. You know, if you think, oh my God, that's so terrifying. I wonder if I'd have the moral courage to manage that. I really doubt it. But maybe it would be okay if I could figure out how to do that. That, to live like that well, then maybe you'd have the ghost of a chance of doing something like that if the situation arose and don't be Trying to underestimate the timidity of people one of the things I've learned in the last year with all the strange Experiences that I've been through is that like I knew people were timid and I knew that they weren't willing to speak out But I had no idea how low the stakes have to be to convince people that they should be quiet even though they know that that runs contrary to their conscience you know, like tenured professors, they're a good example because they're very protected. And I believe that they should be. There's a reason for that. But it's not like I've seen a massive uh, flurry of courageous activity on the part of my tenured peers in the face of the propagandization that's dominating the universities. So even if you protect people, even if they're intelligent people, and they're extraordinarily protected, they're terrified. So, you, you, you have to learn to live so that you're not terrified of telling the truth. That's your, that's your job, is to mold yourself into the sort of being who is capable of living the truth and of telling the truth. And I would say the fate of the world depends on your decision to do that or not do it. And so that's part of the nobility of the human spirit. You know, that, that's, that's our destiny, let's say, and, and our curse. So, if we don't take that seriously, we're going to pay for it. If we do take it seriously, we're going to pay for it. If we don't take it seriously, we're going to pay for it. It's like pick which of those ones you'd rather pay for. That's, that's it. That's what you've got. So, I think, It's better to pay for the truth with your life than to pay for deceit with your life. And no matter what you do, you're going to pay for it with your life. So make your damn decision.
0: So our next question comes from a research scientist in biotechnology. He says that in my field, there is a de-emphasis on defining moral aims and articulation of results in meaningful terms. I'm looking for advice on how a scientific researcher might properly play the part of the logos in their professional life.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the social psychologists are going through a hell of a time right now trying to sort that out. I, I, I mean, I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but I've considered social psychology an intolerably corrupt discipline for about 30 years, and that hasn't made me particularly popular, um, even though it, it's true. And the social psychologists have actually been driven to admit that in the last three or four years. And I would say the latest manifestation of the corruption in that field is that damned implicit association test that everybody and their dog is using to indicate that A, you're an unconscious bigot whether you know it or not and B, that gives us the right to muck about with the substructure of your psyche. And that's happening everywhere. Unconscious bias retraining. There, there Here's a piece of advice. I don't know how many of you have careers where this sort of thing is seeping in, but you do not submit to unconscious bias retraining. A, you admit that you're a racist. B, you 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 indicate by your accession, by your agreement, that the people who are re-educating you have that right, which they don't. C, you admit that their training programs work, which they don't. There's no evidence whatsoever that those training programs work. So first of all, Your unconscious bias is not well understood. We don't know how to distinguish it from in-group preference. Now you think, well, you shouldn't have an in-group preference. It's like, oh, really? Really? Is that right? So you're not supposed to, like, love your family, for example. So, like, you can't love everyone equally. You know, maybe God can do that, but you can't. You can probably hardly even love one person properly, you know. So, you know, trying to extend that to all of humanity. Well, first of all, you're just not there. Let's put it that way. (laughs) So, and then, so that's the first thing is, and we can't, we can't distinguish stereotypes from classification, perceptual classification. We don't know how to do that. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is, the implicit association test does not meet standards for validity and reliability that would allow it to be used as a diagnostic test. So it's actually intellectual fraud. If a clinician did that, they would be drummed out of, they would be violating their responsibility as clinical psychologists. But because they're social psychologists, they can get away with it. It's like the implicit association test. There, there's a very, very small correlation between what the implicit association test measures and your actual behaviors. That's the hallmark of validity. And you have to have a high correlation before you can use a test as a diagnostic instrument. You can't use IAT results in court. Why? Because they're not valid. And they're also not reliable, which means that, let's say I assess your implicit biases, and then I do it again next month, and then I do it again in a year. There's not a lot of similarity between the first measurement and the second measurement and the third measurement. And that means that it's extraordinarily variable. And that's not, like IQ isn't like that. If I measure your IQ today, and then next week, and then next month, it's it's the same Like, it's seriously the same, whereas your implicit biases are bouncing all over the place. And so, to to use that test to justify the idea that everyone's an unconscious racist in some manner that's so important that it actually determines hiring decisions, for example, and important elements of behavior, is scientific fraud of the highest sort. And then to multiply that fraud by the claim that you can take people and run them through some idiot HR exercise run by people who have no competence whatsoever and zero psychological understanding and no scientific training and nothing but political ideological possession, and that that's going to make you a better person is seriously wrong and so we've just got to stop doing that and when people so that's one thing i would recommend is like if if your companies first of all if you run companies like do not fall for this it's fraud of the lowest sort and if you're an employee it's like no you don't let your employer retrain your unconscious biases like that's a place to draw the line and when someone does that To you and suggest that it's necessary they are not your friend and if you don't stand up to them now then you'll wait five years and there's going to be a lot more of them and a lot less of you so it's not going to get any better so that's just got to be I've written I emailed Mazarin Banaji for example who's one of the creators of the IAT and said like why the hell don't you come out in public and make a make a declaration you know perfectly well that this test is being misused you know it you know it You won't come out and say, hey guys, you really can't use this test that way. And you certainly can't retrain people's unconscious biases. You cannot do that. No, Radio silence, man. Radio silence. And the reason for that, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm willing to be proved wrong, is that the people who originated that test are perfectly happy with the political consequences of its misuse. So... Anyways, obviously that really irritates me. So,
0: <laughs> so now I don't remember the question. <laughs> so yeah. So it was um, as a research scientist in biotech. I'm oh, looking yes. for advice on how I might properly play the part of the logos in. Yeah. My d- okay.
1: Life. So so back to the. <laughs>
0: Back to the social
1: psychologist thing, part of the reason I didn't like what was happening in social psychology, and this is certainly the case of much of what happens in the academy, is that it's much more about career advancement within a rather corrupt hierarchy than it is with attempting to lay out the truth. The truth is an ugly thing. Like, if you're a social scientist, you keep finding out things that you don't want to find them out. You can tell when you found something that's real. As a social scientist, because you think, oh God, I wish that wasn't true. It's like, oh, well, you probably found out a fact then, you know. <laughs> it's like an IQ is a good example of that. I mean, nobody with any sense would ever want to find out what IQ tests find out. I mean, what IQ tests find out is that there is an unbelievable variability in human intellectual ability. It's, t- it's horrible. It's horrible. Let me give you an example. So, let's say you have an IQ of 82, Okay. Uh, like, the average college student at, at sort of a mid-level college has an IQ of about 115, and there's as many people as that as, as who have an IQ of 85. Okay, so you know the approximate numbers there. And so, but we're going to go a little lower than 85, and so 85 is about 15% of the population, and 82 is, say, 12% or something like that. So that, let's say that's one person in 10, which is a lot of people, okay? So now, the United States Armed Forces has been IQ testing since World War I, basically. And they've done a lot of the basic research. And they have the reasons, right? Because what they need to do is screen very large numbers of people under emergency circumstances and sort them into categories of potential competence. It's a big deal. But they also have another issue, which is they need people. It's not easy for the Armed Forces to recruit. So the Armed Forces has every reason to overestimate the competence of people. Because if they, you know, let's say you need a minimum level of competence to be in the armed forces, but like you're desperate for people, so you don't want to exclude people unnecessarily, quite the contrary. You want to fool yourself into thinking that everyone's much more useful than they actually are. It's illegal to induct anyone into the armed forces in the United States if they have an IQ of 82 or less. Why? because there isn't a single thing that the army has figured out that someone in that situation can do that isn't positively counterproductive. That's one in ten people. That, if that doesn't horrify you, you're not listening. You know, and it, it means the liberals have a problem because the liberals say, well, you can train anyone to do anything, which that is not true. And, and, and it's simply not true. That's a lie. It's not true. And it's a dangerous lie. Because there are massive differences between people at the individual level. Far more differences than anyone with any sense would like there to be. And then the conservatives think, well, if you just worked hard enough, you could advance yourself in the world. It's like, no, not if you have an IQ of 80. Sorry, that's wrong. And so that's like 10% of the population. And so we, we want to grapple with this, right? And so anyways, so back to scientific truth is like, if you're a scientist, you know, you have to decide what it is that you're up to. Are you advancing your career? And I mean, you need to do that. Like I teach my students pragmatic modes of behavior that at least don't interfere with their career development. But you, you have to be pursuing the truth. You have to swear to pursue the truth. I mean, Carl Jung pointed out that part of the reason that science could develop where it did develop, which was basically in the Christian societies, at least to begin with, was because Christianity had put such a tremendous emphasis on the truth above everything. The truth above even Christianity. Christianity. And so that science emerged out of that. It's like, you're going to pursue the truth no matter where it takes you. And Darwin, for example, when he came up with the theory of natural selection, it just about killed him. He had panic attacks for most of his life because he knew that he was going to throw this bomb right into the middle of the dogmatic structure of Christianity. You know, he was terrified of that. And so, but as far as Darwin was concerned, it was like, well, this seems to be true. So, I, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to, like, okay. There we go, (laughs) and you know we know what's been the consequence of that, but with any luck what will happen is that that will What the consequence of that will be will be a strengthening of our spiritual knowledge You know once we can digest that terrible fact that you know you may disagree with that But you can't if you're a scientist that's for sure we're going to digest that terrible fact, and if it happens to be true, then it's going to fit in with the truth, and that's going to be okay. So, as a scientist, you have to, it, it's a holy endeavor. That's the, what life is, of course, a holy endeavor. But you, you have to put the truth above all else. You know, when I do my statistics, I try to destroy my results. Something pops up as a fact, and I think, nah, it's probably not right, because there's a million ways to screw up an experiment, like one way to do it right. So, you get results, you think, no... Probably not. So then you have to replicate it a couple of times to see if it does actually manage to survive. And that's very hard on your students because maybe they get a study that works and then two that don't. It's like, well, there's three years gone. You know, and you don't get to write a paper and you don't publish anything and your career's, like, your career's screwed. So that's a pretty high high price to pay. And then when I use my statistics, I try to make the results go away. And if I can't make them go away, then I think, yeah, it's probably wrong. But, you know, it's the best I can manage. And I could tentatively, like, try to replicate it and then publish it. And so, you know, you have to assume you're wrong as a scientist, which is the proper way to think as a scientist. And then you have to, you also have to be terrified. This is also really helpful. So imagine you're a scientist and, you know, you discover something and it isn't true and you publish it. Well, then you're in trouble, because now you you think it's true. And so then you're going to spend the next 10 years investigating it. And, well, what if it's not true? Well, then you spend your next 10 years chasing around a delusional ghost. That's stupid. And you get a bunch of other people doing the same thing, which, that isn't good. So, you know, think about life and morality you've got to get your fears in the right place. You might think, well, I'm afraid that I won't be able to publish. It's like, hey, fair enough, man, like, that's horrible. I'm afraid that I'll publish something stupid and waste my life. Oh, well, hmm, that's also bad. So how about if we go with the first horrible thing and not the second horrible thing? And that's a really good way of orienting yourself generally in life. It's like, well, should, should you tell the truth? Well, no, God, it's horrible to tell the truth. Should you lie? Oh, well, that's a whole, that's hell. Like the first part, that's just not so good. The second one, that's hell. So those are your choices you can you can pay for the truth or you can or you can pay for your deceptions but you're going to pay. So it's so it's hard for people to notice that because we don't like to think that way right we don't like to think we're damned if we do and we're damned if I don't if we don't but we do die so like that's pretty much the end of that. So so you know you're, the worst thing that could happen to you is already going to happen. At least now that gives you the choice of how you're going to live that's something and it's a lot more than you think you know in this new book that i wrote i I wrote about socrates and i I wrote about socrates apology you know he's the athenians tell him that they're going to kill him basically they say we're going to put you on trial for corrupting the youth but they that isn't what they're saying they're saying look you're really annoying you're annoying everyone and you have been for a long time and so like We're going to put you on trial and, and we're going to find you guilty and then we're going to kill you. So you should probably leave town. That, that's the, that's the message. And everyone, we're we're going to do it in six months. It's like, hint, hint. (laughs) So, so, you know, all of Socrates' friends say, you should get out of town. And Socrates thinks, yeah, I should get out of town because these guys are going to kill me. It's like, it's time to get out of town. And so he goes away and thinks about this, but he has this thing in his, this spiritual phenomena within him that he calls his daemon, which is genius, let's say, and it always tells him when he's doing something wrong, and then he doesn't do it if it says that it's wrong, and he says during his trial that what had distinguished him during his life from other human beings was that he always listened to this thing, And when it told him that what he was doing, he shouldn't be doing, he stopped doing it or he stopped saying it. And he decided that he was going to live like that. So you could think about that as the voice of conscience. That's a perfectly reasonable way of thinking about it. It didn't tell him what to do, but it told him what not to do. He said he always listened to that period and that that was why his life turned out the way that it did. And somebody went to the Delphic Oracle and asked the Delphic Oracle who was the wisest man in Greece. And she said it was Socrates. And he was kind of shocked about that because he thought he was just someone who was trying to figure things out. Because he didn't know anything, which made him wise, right? Because you don't know anything. So you should go out there and like talk to people that disagree with you. Because what the hell do you know? Maybe they're right. Or maybe you should even talk to your enemy. Because maybe they'll tell you something about you that you need to know. So, anyways, Socrates goes out and has a little chat with his conscience. And it says, don't run away. And he thinks, <laughs> what do you mean, don't run away? They're going to kill me. Right? And that's a big problem. But, but the daemon is insistent. It's like, yeah, 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 that's true. They're, they're going to kill you. Don't run away. And... He thinks, okay, well now I've got a choice. I can betray everything I've stood for in my entire life, or I can listen to this voice and do what it says. And then he thought, well, what if I assume that the voice is correct instead of incorrect? What would that imply? And so then he goes back and tells his friends, because they're all freaking out. It's like, get out of town, man, you know, get out of town. The bad guys are coming. It's it's time to hit the high road on your horse, you know. And he said, no, no, I've been thinking about this. It's like, maybe this is actually a reward from the gods. It's like, I'm old, and I've had a good life. And, you know, the next, maybe he's 75. I don't know how old he was when he was put to death, but he was old. And he was thinking, well, the next... 10 years, you know, they might not be that great. I'm going to, maybe I'll lose my critical faculties, and maybe, you know, I'll suffer all the indignities of old age, and 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 that's all not necessarily something to look forward to, and so maybe I'm being rewarded, and the gods are giving me a noble out, and I can put my affairs in order, and and I can face this without fear, and and I can say goodbye. And so he thinks, well, it could be, you know, what do I know? And so then that's what he does, which is the remarkable thing, right? But what's so interesting to read, you can read these online, there's two different versions of Socrates' Apology, one is written by Plato, and one is written by Xenophon, and it's quite interesting, they're only like 10 pages long, it's interesting to read both of them, because they're like court transcripts in some sense, right? they're like newspaper reports, and they're slightly different, which is good, it's You know, that's kind of an indication of their reliability. And what happens is Socrates goes to the trial. And he's not afraid because he's already decided, well, this isn't a trial. Like, you're just here to say that you're going to kill me. And so we're not going to act like this is a trial. And so he explains his decision and what he's like. And then he goes around to his jurors, let's say, which are the powerful men of Athens. And he tells them what he thinks about them and what's going to happen to them in the future. And it's, it's not pretty. And you think, it's no wonder they wanted this old goat dead. It's like, <laughs> you know, he's, he's pretty perceptive. And so he turns the tables completely. And instead of being the person who's being judged, he is the judge. And it's something vicious, man. He, is su- he takes them apart. And he goes and takes his poison like a man. And we talk about him 3,000 years later, right? He establishes the basis for rational Western <laughs> thought. And, like, take your poison like a man. There, if that, you want a capstone statement about the nature of masculinity, you got it right there. So.
0: Well, as we wrap up with this session here tonight, perhaps uh, a good question to end with, especially after your discussion of Socrates, is this. What is the most practical way to become an intellectual giant?
1: (laughs) There is no practical way to do that. (laughs) It's completely impractical, that. Well, the first thing, I don't know if, if it's something that you can become or something that you're cursed with in some sense. And, well, here's what I mean by that is like, to really make a discovery in some field, or to advance a field, you have to be obsessed with it. And this is one of the things that people don't understand about high achievement. Is like high achievement is very rare because you need to be well, very intelligent first, and so that's rare. And then often you have to be very creative, which is also rare. And you often have to be hard-working, which is also rare. And these are different kinds of rare, so it's sort of like the product of all those rarities. And then you, like, yeah, you have to work like a mad dog. And 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 it isn't normal work, because you have to be obsessed by it. Because if you're going to make the advancement in the field, like, you have to be smarter than the other people who are busily trying to make advancements. And then you have to outwork them. And then you have to be healthy and have lots of energy. And, like, a lot of things have to come together before you could be, let's say, an intellectual giant. It's like, so it's, so, but apart from that, apart from all those things that have to be there as precursors, is like, you have to have a problem. You know, you think, well, oh, people are creative. It's like, no, they're not. That's wrong. We, we've done lots of studies of creative achievement. And so we put together this creative achievement questionnaire, and it lists th- 13 different domains of potential creativity, all the domains we could really think about. Um, culinary creativity, architectural creativity, entrepreneurial creativity, industrial creativity, Dance, music, literature, etc. And then we had experts rate levels of attainment within each of those fields. And then, like, zero means I have no talent or training in this area. And, like, ten means I'm an international superstar in this area, right? And so, the median score on the Creative Achievement Questionnaire is zero. Zero. So, 60% of the people who take the test across all 13 domains score zero. Okay, so... And you need to know that because, you know, people say, well, everyone's creative. It's like, no, that's wrong. Not everyone is a genius and not everyone's creative. And that's just how it is. And it isn't even obvious that creativity can be fostered, although it is obvious that it can be destroyed. You have to see what the chi- what else the child is good for, so to speak, and foster that. Well, seriously, you know, you got to look at your kid and maybe they're Extroverted and so they're great in social environments or maybe they're agreeable. So they make wonderful relationships or maybe they're conscientious and they work really hard It's like pay attention. You know, there's going to be some Manifestation of ability and talent you want to foster that so okay, so Rats I forgot the question again
0: <laughs> the most practical way to become an oh yeah, yeah, child. yeah,
1: so so You got you have to be cursed with a problem That's the thing, because you won't be motivated enough, even if you're conscientious and intelligent and fortunate, all of those things, unless there's a problem eating at you nonstop so that you do nothing but think about it all the time, like 16 hours a day in a manic manner. And so you're absolutely obsessed by it. You're just not going to do it because, and and some, there has to be some terror associated with that. So it's not only like I want to work on this problem. It's like I'm absolutely terrified of the consequences if I don't solve this problem, and it's driving me crazy all the time. And so if you're not like that, you're just not going to be obsessive enough to to do the things that you need to do to read everything in a like a completely you know obsessed manner and to work like 80 or 90 hours a week and like work right, not like. Go to the library and look at your iPhone and pretend that you're studying. That's not work. Work is like you're bloody working at the top of your capacity until you're exhausted. And you do that nonstop. And the people who are really advancing their fields, is that what, that's what they're like. And if they're fortunate, they're healthy enough so that they can stand that. So, but you have to have a problem. You have to be gripped by something, like an obsession. And, and you have to focus on that nonstop because it's competitive. To be the best at something, it's like you're being chased by monsters if you're trying to be the best at something, because they're all trying to be the best too. And So unless all those things come together, it's just it's not going to happen. Now, and maybe you don't even want it to happen, but if you're the sort of person who's like that, then, well, first of all, figure out what your problem is, and then you want to try to solve it. It's like, I have a problem. Like, my problem was, why do people gather together in groups and kill each other at their own risk? Right? I, I couldn't figure that out. It was a Cold War issue. It's like, well, here we are. We've set ourselves up in the world. And we've got all of these hydrogen bombs aimed at each other. And that doesn't seem like a very good idea. So why are we doing it? What What's the actual reason this is happening? And I don't know why that was the my problem. It was, it, you have a problem. You have a problem. Like, people have problems that pick them. You know, and, and they're of different scale. And... You want to try to solve your problem, but sometimes you have a problem that grabs you by the throat, just shakes you and won't let you go. And if you don't have a problem like that, you're not going to be motivated enough to do all the ridiculously complicated things that you have to do to make a major contribution to an intellectual field. You know, unless you're just one of those geniuses like, well, there is no geniuses like that. Like Edison, I mean, he just worked all the time, right? So... And that's the other thing that people don't understand about success is that some people have disproportionate success. And well, let's say they're blessed, they have a high IQ, let's say, and maybe they're even intrinsically conscientious. But those people who have high levels of success is they work so hard, you just can't believe it. They're so efficient. Like every second is utilized in a productive manner, you know, and they drive the people around them crazy. And it's no wonder, you know, like you want to live with someone like that, they're like they're an arrow going in one direction, man, and you better stay the hell out of their way. And maybe they don't even have any time for you. And it's it's not necessarily something to be hoped for. But it's a good thing that there are some people like that because they're the people who break the new frontiers and, well, and turn us upside down from time to time. And but, But if you are like that, then read everything you can get your hands on. That's, that's the trick, you know, and if you can read widely as well as deeply, that's even better because the real geniuses know that the discoveries are often made at the intersection between disciplines, right? Because that's where the activity really takes place. So it's really good to know one field in depth and then another field that no one in that field knows in depth as well. That makes you deadly because there's no one like you then. And so then you have an opportunity to go where no man has gone before, let's say, and and, and make a discovery. But that's a hard thing to do. But you know, if you like that, well go good, go for it. That's that's and it's not like there's
0: any shortage of things to read. So <laughs> well, thank you for your experiences and your thoughts. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Jordan Peterson.